Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's great to see you all. Uh, for those who don't know me, I'm Paul Dudley. I'm one of the assistant ministers looking after, helping to look after this congregation. I've said occasionally that, or you may know, that I grew up on a farm. Our farm was just outside of Bathurst, about 30 kilometres. Uh, it was surrounded by 19,000 hectares of pine forest. And one kilometre from our house was the Kirkconnell Correction Centre, a minimum security prison for males. Occasionally, we would get a phone call. Uh, hello, Mr Dudley. Uh, we've had another escapee. Uh, look, I don't think you have any problems. He's pretty keen to get away. We're looking for him. He's a fugitive on the run. Uh, but uh, just make sure the house is locked, car locked, I don't think you have any problems. And of course we didn't. Uh, they were very keen to get away. Uh, but it was nonetheless interesting getting these phone calls. But of course there are some fugitives around today who are very dangerous indeed. Taking it to another level, if you go to the FBI most wanted list, there you will see photos, names, descriptions, uh, the crimes that they committed and the rewards if you have any information. Don't know if there was a Jerusalem most wanted list, but Jesus most certainly would have been on it. Read with me the very first uh, verse of chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, it would be good to open up to that section. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee he would not go into Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. He decided to stay in Galilee, uh, Judea, where Jerusalem was. Uh, he would not go there because he was a fugitive there. Uh, they were seeking to arrest him and to kill him. What had he done? What made this guy so notorious that he could not even go into Jerusalem for the fear of being put in jail and being killed? Well, if you were here a number of weeks ago, when we were looking at chapter 5, there was one incident, one moment that kind of lit the fuse. Six months earlier, Jesus had visited Jerusalem. He encountered a paralysed man who'd been paralysed for 38 years. And he said to him, get up, take your mat and walk. And that's exactly what the guy did. Astounding display of power and authority. Incredible. A man's life given back to him. But not all are happy with that. And because he gave this man life, his life was now at risk and he was a most wanted man in Jerusalem. It's why we're told in the next verse why he doesn't go up immediately to, a, to the great feast of booths. This was an important festival for the, for the Jewish people. It was a time when people would flood into Jerusalem at the time of harvest. It was incredibly important. But Jesus doesn't go initially up to this feast. But he does go up a little bit later. Not publicly, but privately. 
And so we're going to look at, in the passage, the rest of chapter 7, three things that we see the fugitive doing when he gets to Jerusalem. The first thing, what is the first thing the fugitive does when he goes to Jerusalem? Jesus divides. Wherever he goes, his words and actions cause division. The fact that he can't go up there is a testimony to the fact that he is already causing such division. Well, we see there that Jesus eventually does privately go up. And as he's walking around, you can imagine him kind of listening to the chatter going on around Jerusalem. Uh, People talking and muttering to themselves. There's already a great debate. People are looking out for him. Look in verse 11. Look at the different reactions. He's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading people astray. He hasn't even got there and opened his mouth. And his words and actions go before him. Jesus divides. Do you see there in verse 13? Just the fear that people had. They, they were so fearful of even speaking about Jesus openly. They kind of whispered for the fear that the reaction of the elite, the Jewish leaders, those bullies who threatened. Jesus' words and actions go before him. But we see in verse 14, right in the middle of the feast, he starts to teach. Notice the reactions to his words there in verse 15. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning We've never, when he has never studied? In verse 15, we see here again Jesus bringing division. He stands up and he starts speaking and some are marvelling at what he's done. But others, they just it creates debate. It creates this long Q&A with the religious elite. And Jesus answers those questions. As he answers and he speaks so boldly, again, we get this, this word of division that is starting to happen. People starting to mutter. Have a look in verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly. And they say, they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? This is the key question, isn't it? This is the whole thing that the division's all about. Is he the Christ? Is he the great one that was promised in the Old Testament? The promised king? The one that would bring God's people freedom? And so, they're firing all these questions at him. Questions of identity, where he's from, where's he going? Uh, Where is he teaching from? How do we understand his signs and, and his understanding of the scriptures? We see here, here Jesus makes it very clear that his identity comes from his father. He is from his father. He is sent from his father and he's going back to his father. Here is the Christ. And this is the question that divides everyone in Jerusalem. Is he the Christ? 
verse 30 and 31, kind of bring this summary. Verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Jesus divines. Note again the reaction to Jesus' words on the great and final day of the feast, a bit further along in the passage. Jesus has been speaking again on this great occasion of the last day, the last and great and final day. And here we see the reactions this time to his words. Look at verse 40. This really is the prophet. And others says, this is the Christ. But others, they're not so sure. John brings a summary for us of how Jerusalem feels about this fugitive. Verse 43. So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. So many different reactions. He's demon-possessed. Some marvel, some believe, others don't. Some recognise that he's unique. Some have never seen anything like this. And others, they want him dead. They want to arrest him and kill him. It's true today as well, isn't it? It's true today. Jesus' actions and words spill divine. Whether it's on the project on television, whether it's uh, with the Law Reform Review for schools, Jesus' name divides. You cannot not have an opinion. He demands a verdict. He pushes you to to make a decision. It demands a response. Think about in your own life, when you mention the name Jesus, the different reactions you have there. One of my good friends, for him, uh, Jesus is just a good man, a good teacher, had a good saying, but he's not the Christ. Here's my first point. Jesus the fugitive comes to Jerusalem and he divides. Friends, we should expect that division for ourselves. The question is, why does he divide? Maybe it's just that there's not enough information about him. Maybe we're not explaining ourselves clearly enough. Maybe uh, it's just Jesus is not making himself clear. Well, this leads us to our second point about what the fugitive does when he comes to Jerusalem. Jesus divides because he exposes. Right from the very beginning, at the beginning of the chapter, the brothers come to Jesus and they say that he needs more exposure. Uh, He needs to kind of, if he really is the Christ, then he ought to go to the festival of booths and he ought to declare himself right at the very beginning of the chapter. The brothers do not yet understand their big brother. 
And so in verse 6, Jesus says this. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Read that last bit again. But it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Friends, here are some very simple and sobering words. They are confronting, they are very dark. Every individual, every single person, all have got the same problem, Jesus says. Each of us, our works are evil. I can hear you going, oh, hang on, whoa, 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 hey, wait up a little bit. That's a little strong, isn't it? Our works are evil. I mean, you know, an evil sex offender, yes, gangland wars, maybe, domestic violence, all these things, yes. But everyone, evil? Jesus gets to Jerusalem. It's meant to be the place where the religious, the religious elite come together. It's meant to be this great moment where they celebrate God's provision. This is what they were meant to do. They were made to love God with all their heart and all their strength and all their their mind. But anyone who lives to please himself, well, they're not of God. They're fundamentally against God. And ultimately, in Jesus' words, evil. No wonder they don't want to hear from Jesus. No wonder they hate him. Throughout this chapter, Jesus exposes the motives and the hearts of God's people. And it all comes around this central issue of Jesus healing the paralytic. Now, we need to get a bit of background on this story in chapter 5. See, the background is Jesus heals this paralytic on a Sabbath. And the religious leaders, well, they see it as a form of work. Jesus is breaking the Sabbath laws. And this, according to them, is serious. So serious, he needs to die. All agreed. He's breaking the law. The Old Testament was on their side. But Jesus says, let's, let's just think about this for a moment. Uh, Moses, uh, in the law, uh, had the circumcision. And circumcision was to happen eight days after birth. Um, uh, you know, and uh, if that so happened to fall on the Sabbath, well, it was okay to still circumcise on the Sabbath. You kind of weighed those things up. It was, it was okay because the, the, that was the right thing to do. So Jesus pushes through with the logic. If it's right for one part of the body on the Sabbath, how much more the whole body if it's made well? Jesus argues here, argument is infutable. Jesus saying, look carefully at what he did. He restores a man to the fullness of life like no one else has ever done. 
And so because of that, he then goes on in this chapter in different places to show their real attitudes and plans of their hearts. I look there in verse 19, 16 to 19, in particular 19. He points out that they do not choose to do God's will. Yet none of you keeps the law. They're only interested in their own glory. But Jesus keeps God's law and seeks God's honour. Uh, Secondly, they misunderstand God's law. Uh, Look there in verse 24. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Jesus does uh, understand God's law and he fulfills it by healing the man on the Sabbath. And thirdly, the claim to know God. They claim that they know him, but Jesus makes it very clear in verse 28. He who sent me is true and him you do not No. He knows God because he is from God. Most telling of all, they're trying to kill him. The religious elite, the ones that ought to be giving life, the ones who are talking about the God of life, they're seeking to kill him. And as we'll see over the next couple of chapters, we'll see this rapid downhill spiral as they try, as Jesus exposes their true nature, time and time again. They tried to kill him. It's mentioned five times in this section. It's the same today, my friends. That murderous hostility towards Christ. Oh, he's no longer here. But people express it towards those who follow him. Christ's faithful losing their lives. We may not face physical persecution here and now in Sydney. But Sydney doesn't want to hear about Jesus. They want the real Jesus of the Bible silenced. I remember going to a clergy conference down in Melbourne. And one of the clergy stood up and he said, of course we know there's no resurrection of Jesus from the dead. At another moment, one of the other clergy who happened to be from one of the Bible colleges got up and stood and said, all religions lead to God. It doesn't matter which way you go. We live in a world who refuse to listen to Jesus and what he says about ourselves. So many love the nostalgia of the church, but not the words of Christ. Christ comes to expose Think in your own lives. Let me ask you, how many times did you publicly talk about Jesus last week? At your work, at university, school? So rarely. Isn't it the same as in Jerusalem? Verse 13, they feared what others would say. Here we see Jesus making it very clear, his words and his works. He says that the works of the world are evil. No wonder no one wants to hear from him. He's a marked man because he speaks the truth. But my third point, uh, Jesus doesn't leave it there. The fugitive goes to Jerusalem, he goes there to divide, he goes there to expose 
But the fugitive goes there to give life. Friends, the great climax, the great high point of this chapter comes in verses 37 to 39. It'd be good if you had that open so you can have a look at it. It's at the last great day of the Feast of Booths. Jesus stands up and he cries out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now, if we're going to have a full understanding of this, we need to understand a little bit more about this harvest festival. It was a great time of joy and celebration. But on the eighth day of the festival, when all Israel was gathered, they're all camped in their little booths or tabernacles, just little tents made out of branches. They're all kind of living in them. And it was there to remind them that they lived in tents in the wilderness during God's great rescue. Two great themes come out of that, that of light and water. Uh, The people look back into the past, remembering God's provision of water from the rock in the desert, but also his presence in the pillar of cloud of light that went ahead of him. But this festival wasn't just looking back at God's provision. It looked forward to when God would do something again that is grand. Zechariah the prophet spoke about in the time of exile that there was a time in the future where there would be another great feast of booths when all God's promises to his people would be fulfilled through an act of cleansing, restoring and judgment. And his sovereignty over the whole world would be established. It's this great day that Jesus stands up. You can imagine it, can't you? He knows there are those out there that are wanting to kill him, but he stands up in this great moment where everyone is there at this great high point. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus makes this astounding offer, an offer of living water, the fulfillment of all that they've been looking forward to. Jesus says, it's me. It's hard to imagine some of the force of this because water is so readily available. That idea of thirsting, I don't know if you've seen the film, 127 Hours. It's a true story of Aaron Ralston, who was on a mountain biking trip in the National Park in Utah. Uh, He falls down this crevice and his arm gets kind of caught between a boulder and and a rock wall. And he can't get it out. He just can't get it out. And so after five days of desperation, he is utterly out of water. He is so thirsty. He pulls out his knife. And cuts his arm off so that he can get water. Water is essential for survival. Jesus stands up and says, anyone who thirsts, come to me and drink. Anyone who knows, anyone who knows that their works are evil, anyone who knowing, uh, want to know what it is to be right with Jesus, they are desperately for, thirsty for that. They long for forgiveness to have a satisfying relationship with their maker now and forever. They have this agonising thirst. Nothing will satisfy. They will do anything, even cut off an arm. What can be done? Come to me and drink, says Jesus. Jesus goes on in verse 38 to say that living waters will flow out of his heart. 
Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What does he mean by this? Well, verse 39 gives us a pointer about God's spirit, God's spirit to come and live in God's people. Those who believed in Jesus only when he was glorified, though. Notice there in verse 39. Now, he said this about the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When we move forward to John 19, where Jesus is on the cross, where his death is about to happen, his side is pierced, and blood and water flow. Yes, Jesus died, but this is a part of God's plan. It's how he would deal with the problem once and for all to bring about that deepest thirst that needs to be satisfied. Jesus pointed further forward, looking forward to the great age of the Spirit, when God would no longer dwell in a, in a tent or in the temple, but in the hearts of those who would believe. Here is life, life given by the Spirit. So let's just step back a moment. Why, when the world hates Jesus, would anyone want to believe in him? Why would anyone be willing to speak up? It's the same reason Jesus stood up and spoke at the Feast of Booths. There is an urgent need, a thirst around. The stakes are too high to remain silent. Jesus knew there was hostility out there, but he wanted to meet the needs of the world, the thirsty world. Here in John 7, we see Jesus, the fugitive, at work. And he continues to do that same work in our world today. Jesus' words and actions will continue to divide but not because of the strength of evidence alone, but because he exposes the works of the world that are evil. And in the end, there are only two things you can do with Jesus. Either you will hate him or you will recognise that this is the Christ. This is the King sent by God. And he knows what we're like, yet he still offers us life-giving water of the Spirit. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, give us courage, we pray. Courage to recognise that Jesus is the Christ and follow him. We thank you, Father, that he brings life-giving water, his Spirit, that we might be in relationship with you, that we might have sins forgiven. Give us courage, Father, to be like him, and to speak boldly to those that we know. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.